London, this is The Economist. Hello, and welcome to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights program serving up choice cuts from across our coverage. I'm Sarah Maslin, foreign correspondent for The Economist, and on the table this week, after yet another mass shooting, how can the United States protect its people? The heartless prejudice of the algorithms that shape our lives. And why the legend of Frankenstein is still electrifying 200 years on. But we start with our cover story. Heading back to hell was our cover line this week. The war in Congo raged for five terrible years, from 1998 to 2003. Estimates of the death toll range between one million and over five million. Nobody was counting. Apart from those directly involved, hardly anybody knows what the bloodshed was about. Our cover story explained why the world needs to pay attention now, because Africa's worst war might be about to start again. Imagine a giant house whose timbers are rotten. That was the Congolese state under Mobutu Sese Seko, the kleptocratic tyrant who ruled from 1965 to 1997. Mobutu and his underlings looted the Congolese state until it could barely stand. When a shock struck, it collapsed. The shock was the Rwandan genocide of 1994. The perpetrators of that abomination, defeated at home, fled into Congo. Rwanda invaded Congo to eliminate them. Meeting almost no resistance, since no one wanted to die for Mobutu, the highly disciplined Rwandans overthrew him and replaced him with their local ally, Laurent Kabila. Then Kabila switched sides and armed the genocidaire, so Rwanda tried to overthrow him too. It was the perfect opportunity for all the neighbours to rush in to steal the family jewels, Congo's mines of diamonds, gold and coltan. Eight foreign countries became embroiled, along with dozens of local militias. Warlords stoked ethnic divisions, urging young men to take up arms to defend their tribe and rob the one next door, because the state could not protect anyone. Rape spread like a forest fire. When peace finally came, Congo was in ruins. Kabila's son, Joseph, has been president since his father was shot in 2001. He has failed to build a state that does not prey on its people. Bigwigs still embezzle. Soldiers mug peasants. Public services barely exist. The law counts for little. When a judge recently refused to rule against an opposition leader, thugs broke into his home and raped his wife and daughter. On this increasingly unstable foundation, Congo could begin to collapse again at any moment. Mr Kabila was elected for a final five-year term in 2011. His mandate ran out in 2016, but he clings to the throne. He is pathetically unpopular. No more than 10% of Congolese back him. He is losing control. Ten of 26 provinces are suffering armed conflict. Dozens of militias are once again spilling blood. Some two million Congolese fled their homes last year, bringing the total still displaced to around 4.3 million. There is ample evidence that countries which have suffered a recent civil war are more likely to suffer another. But beyond the immediate neighbourhood, why should the world care? Congo matters mainly because its people are people and deserve better. It also matters because it is huge, two-thirds the size of India. And when it burns, the flames spread. 
Violence has raged back and forth across its borders with Rwanda, Uganda, Angola, South Sudan and the Central African Republic. Studies find that civil wars cause grave economic harm to neighbouring states, which in Congo's case are home to 200 million people. Put another way, if Congo were peaceful and functional, it could be the crossroads of an entire continent and power every country south of it with dams on its mighty river. Congo's collapse can be prevented. You can find out who has the power to stop it and how in this week's issue of The Economist. It's available on newsstands, online at economist.com or through our app. And for solutions to the world's toughest problems every week, go to economist.com slash subscribe. Now, last week there was yet another terrible shooting in an American school. On Wednesday, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Our foreign editor, Robert Guest, spoke to The Economist Asks about how and whether the United States can prevent these all-too-frequent tragedies. Your starting point in America is that the Constitution very clearly says that you have an individual right to bear arms. So it's very difficult for uh, lawmakers to come up with uh, effective gun control laws that will pass um, constitutional muster. That said, uh, it seems uh, not at all unreasonable that you might have uh, background checks, that you might make it very difficult for people uh, with uh, mental health problems or uh, criminal records to buy guns, and that you could really limit the ability of people to get hold of guns that can fire rapidly. If you're using a gun to go hunting with, uh, you really don't need a huge magazine that will fire rapidly. The rest of that conversation is available on The Economist Asks on Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast platforms. We want to hear from you, too. Is gun control the answer? What sort of controls would be most effective? And how can American policymakers make these reforms acceptable to the American people? You can reach us at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Elsewhere in our coverage, Economist Radio managed to look forward with reasonable hope to the rest of this still young year. The last in our six-part series on the world in 2018 focused on the technology that will shape our lives this year. Kathy O'Neill is the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. According to Kathy, we're all being judged, constantly. Algorithms use historical information to try to predict the future. On a daily basis, they can be responsible for whether we get an Uber ride, a credit card, or even a place at college. The problem is, these judgments are not always fair. I was a data scientist myself, building algorithms, and the way I saw it eventually was that I was choosing the winners and losers of a given system. We end up doing things like, oh, if you live in this zip code, then you're low value. If you live in that zip code, you're high value. And we make all sorts of decisions and that end up being sort of demographic splits along the old-fashioned lines like gender, race, poverty, class. And if you also add to that how many times this happens to a given person, how often they come across algorithms that are deciding their future based on their demographics, then you realize that this is actually quite a sorting tool that works directly against the concept of social mobility. So what's to be done? You can hear the whole of our six-part series on the world in 2018 by subscribing to Economist Radio. Our regular science and technology podcast, Babbage, will be back as usual on Wednesday. Now, have a listen to this. What does it remind you of? Greet your husband with a smile when he comes and a smile when he goes. Don't dabble in his work. Make your house a paradise on earth. 
No, these aren't women's magazines from the 1950s, let alone earlier. They're taken from Beituki, which means the home. It's a women's magazine, yes, but a new one, published by Al-Qaeda. Elizabeth Kendall of Oxford University came on the week ahead, our foreign affairs podcast, to tell us more. I think what Al-Qaeda fears is probably women becoming more active. This is not unusual in conflict zones. In fact, we saw it here in Britain during the First and Second World Wars that conflicts empower women. Women are necessarily forced to enter the workplace, to take on the roles traditionally done by men. And after the wars end, after the conflict ends, it's quite difficult to put them back in their boxes. I think Al-Qaeda is making a big attempt to preempt that, to tell women, stay indoors. That might be the way to paradise on earth for their husbands. Somehow I doubt it would be so for the wives. The Week Ahead is published every Friday. But then, the road to happiness is many-branched, as a piece in the pages of our Asia section revealed. Japan's young people are characterized as melancholic misfits. But new surveys suggest they're perking up. There are several reasons why satisfaction is rising. Partly because of the cost of housing. More young people live with their parents. Masahiro Yamada, a sociologist, calls them parasite singles. Not having to pay for accommodation means they have more disposable income. It's great not having to cook for myself, says Kosuki Yamawaki. And that's not the only thing to have got better since the bad old days. On every street corner is a 7-Eleven or similar convenience store where young people can buy everything from stationery to ready meals and heat and eat them on the spot, flick through manga comics and buy tickets to baseball matches. Although rapid economic growth is history, they appreciate that living standards remain high and that life, apart from housing, is affordable. They shun designer wear, preferring clothes from Uniqlo, a Japanese low-cost brand. Their dream is not to own a BMW or to go skiing, but to enjoy a dessert, as long as it is photogenic enough to post on Instagram. By some measures, they might seem to be having less fun. Japanese youth, like young people the world over, drink less and have less sex than previous cohorts of their age. They are far less likely to be sexually active than their American counterparts. Around 40% of Japanese are still virgins at the age of 34, whereas 90% of men and women in America have had sex before turning 22. But few young people in Japan appear to be bothered. Noritoshi Furuichi, a sociologist, says that friends appear to make young people more content than partners do. Yet that silver lining comes with its own dark cloud. Mr Furuichi believes that one reason why young people are becoming more satisfied with their current lives is precisely because they see little to look forward to. They focus on enjoying the here and now. The once common system of lifelong employment is becoming rarer. A much greater share of working-age Japanese can expect to toil in part-time or non-permanent jobs. They are also likely to struggle to get married and have children, despite the vast majority wanting both. The proportion of people never married by the age of 50 has risen from 5% in 1970 to 19% in 2015. But it's just possible they're pursuing a higher goal. Yohei Harada of the Youth Research Centre at Hakuhodo, an advertising firm, has a rosier view. 
He calls today's young men and women the Sartori Sedai, or Enlightened Generation, meaning that Buddha-like they eschew big aspirations and seek happiness in simple things. That may indeed be the path to nirvana. That might be just a passing fancy, but there are some fascinations that never die. Mary Shelley's monstrous novel, Frankenstein, turns 200 this year. Our books and arts section investigated why the legend of the monster, brought to life by lightning, still has the power to thrill. It was, quite literally, a dark and stormy night. The volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora in faraway Indonesia had plunged Europe beneath unceasing cloud. 1816 was known as the year without a summer. Rain was falling on the shore of Lake Geneva as, on an evening in mid-June, five young people gathered in a swanky villa for a ghost story competition. The host was Lord Byron, at 28 already a jaded superstar who was dodging a scandal in England. Among his young guests were the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and his 18-year-old girlfriend Mary. The contest yielded two ideas that became gothic classics. One was Polidori's The Vampire, originally intended as a queasy satire on Byron and the blood-sucking nature of celebrity. The other, infinitely more famous outcome, was Mary's tale of a scientist who confects a humanoid out of body parts. During the lakeside competition, she felt inhibited by the male poseurs, but she had staying power. Her tale has become charged with legend, but it was grounded in science. Writing her imaginary story of a being jolted to life by Victor Frankenstein, Mary drew on the cutting-edge science of her time, including galvanism and electricity. In the year of the novel's publication, an experiment was conducted in which electrical currents were passed through a corpse in a failed attempt at reanimation. The cadaver convulsed, its fingers twitched, but it remained resolutely dead. Unlike Frankenstein's monster, with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Her pages may even hold lessons for a modern-day aspiring Dr. Frankenstein. The issues raised by artificial life are no longer hypothetical. Genetic modification and robotics have made them urgent. Those analogies are delineated in Frankenstein, How a Monster Became an Icon, a collection of essays edited by Sidney Perkowitz and Eddie von Muller. It includes a useful summary of current attitudes among scientists to techniques commonly known as playing God. But Mary's monster was not born bad. He's one of the most misunderstood characters in fiction. All he wanted was to be loved. It is because the creature is scorned and deprived of a moral framework that he becomes monstrous and seeks a gruesome revenge. I was benevolent and good, he pathetically tells Frankenstein. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. 
Love, abandonment, vengeance, redemption. Of the many adaptations of Frankenstein for page, stage, and screen, it's surely time for an opera. But then, what would we know? On our letters page this week, an avid reader, Olga Berard, took us to task on the subject. Rope, Knife, Rose. Article February 3rd. Got the basic operatic storyline all wrong. Contrary to the thrust of your article, it is the great voices that fill opera houses, not radical directors. So what's the magic formula that puts bums on $400 seats? As George Bernard Shaw famously put it, opera is when a tenor and a soprano want to make love, but are prevented from doing so by a baritone. So that's what they were trying to do. I'm so glad we've cleared that up. We love to hear from listeners as well as readers, so do write in with your thoughts on any of the subjects we cover. You can reach us at radioeconomist.com, and you can find more of all the stories featured here at economist.com and all our podcasts in full through your podcast app. I'm Sarah Maslin. In London, this is The Economist. 